Our scripture text this morning is John chapter 21, starting in verse 1 through 19. After this, Jesus after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to them, Follow me. If you're with us for the first time uh, today, we've been going through this series, um, Dining with Jesus. It's just trying to look at both the person and the ministry of Jesus as it's revealed through his interactions, through his conversations around a table of food. We spend much of our life around tables of food and many conversations are had and I'm praying that as we look at the person of Jesus and what he says and what he does, we might actually begin to walk in a similar manner, that as, as we're gathered around food, as we will be today, uh, that our conversations would be redemptive and encouraging and, and upbuilding. Well, we're continuing in this with Jesus hosting yet another meal. And now, uh, this is the, in John, this is the third recorded appearance of Jesus after the resurrection. So this is post-resurrection. Now, it's an interesting story here, at least interesting to some. It's, it's troubling to others. 
And why is that? Because if you look at chapter 20, the last two verses, the verses right before the text that we read, you'll see it written, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. A lot of scholars want to say that this was a later editor, that this was a story tacked on at the end. You see at the end of 20, it looks like a summary, a concluding passage. And so this is, this is just a fable about it. I don't think that's true at all. In the beginning of John, in chapter 1, you have a prologue here. In chapter 21, you have what we would call an epilogue. John is tying some things up. He's, he's kind of wrapping up the gospel. Think about it for a moment. You know, he speaks about this miraculous catch of fish. It's showing that even after the resurrection, Jesus is still ministering and he's still renewing the faith of his disciples as they hit periods of uncertainty. So if you were taking notes, that would be the first point, that, that he renews our faith. And that's what you're going to see in this miraculous catch of the fish. But you also see, even after the resurrection, that he's still feeding them. He's still serving them. He prepares kind of a, a banquet in the wilderness for him. That he still exists to meet our needs in every way. And, and that would be the second point, that Jesus doesn't just renew faith, but he serves his people, particularly in the wilderness. And, and then last, I think, I think John wants to wrap up, what about Peter? What do we do with Peter? I mean, Peter denied him in a, in a colossal way. There's nothing written about it. Did they reconcile? Did they make amends? And so the third point was that he restores the fallen. He restores Peter. So all this happens after the resurrection to kind of give us, you know, kind of a, a wrapping up of the entire gospel. So I want to just use those three points as the points of our sermon. First, I want you to see, and I want you to understand, because many of us, uh, perhaps even right now, you feel your faith is kind of at a, <clears throat> a low ebb. Maybe it's just kind of stale, maybe a little bit lifeless, and yet he comes to renew faith. And Jesus, remember now, he's going to sanctify us all the way until the end, and so he renews our faith. Look with me at verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night caught nothing. Interesting detail here. Uh, it's by the Sea of Tiberias. Most of the resurrection appearances were in Jerusalem. This one is by the Sea of Tiberias. It's also known as the Sea of Galilee. So here they are. Uh, Jesus appears to seven disciples. And what are they doing? Well, they're fishing. Now, you know, there's no small amount of material written about what are they doing fishing? I mean, didn't we have a big plan to share the gospel to the nations and they're out fishing? What's going on? Well, a lot of scholars just quickly throw them to the dogs and say they've abandoned the faith, they've apostatized, they've, you know, they've given up on the mission, they haven't seen Jesus uh, very frequently in these 40 days post-resurrection, so they've kind of given up on the whole mission. 
Well, I think it's not that simple. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. For example, Jesus had told them that he would be in Galilee after the resurrection. So they are in Galilee, probably waiting for him. And they could have simply been there working to eat until he comes. I mean, one scholar said that though he be crucified and raised, the disciples still have to eat. You know, another scholar said that, that idleness for the Christian is of greater concern than industry. So in other words, it's not wrong to be working. But, but I think there's something more going on here because Jesus makes his appearance to them while they're fishing. So, so I would just submit to you that I think that these disciples could have been, I, I think there were still men of faith and trusting in Christ as he's been raised from the dead. But I do think there's a measure of uncertainty or distractedness. And why do I say that? Well, think about the resurrection appearances for a minute. You know, Jesus only made about seven resurrection appearances. He wasn't with him every day of the 40 days after he was raised. His, his visitations or his appearances were unplanned. They were unscheduled. Uh, you're dealing with a, a man now who's come from the dead, so, so, I mean, they had to have a measure of distractedness, still faithful, still waiting for him, but wondering what, I think Jesus is appearing to them in the midst of their weakness. Here they fish all night long, professional fishermen, they catch nothing. And so Jesus appears to them, I think to renew their faith. I think to come alongside their weakness to strengthen them. And, and here's why I say it. Look with me at four to eight. It says, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Uh, the disciple, whom Jesus loved, uh, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Peter Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment. It could be translated tucked in. He was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging it full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. So here's Jesus. He reveals himself on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. They don't recognize him. Why? Was it too far away? Was it too dark? Was dawn just breaking? We're not told. I would submit to you, though, that, that Jesus always reveals himself for the purposes of edification and strengthening and instructing of faith. And so he reveals himself. But how? By asking them, did you catch any fish? Of course, they give him a negative answer. And so he instructs them to throw the net on the other side. Now, just pause for a minute here because they are professional fishermen. They have fished these waters all their life. They have fished these waters the entire night. And a guy, not even in the boat, not a fisherman, uh, instructs them as to where it's not like the fish only swim on the one side of the boat and not the other. So, so you can just imagine that maybe they were dealing with a degree of resentment. It, it is kind of, you know, kind of poking the bear. But I don't know why. Was, was it resignation? Was it fatigue? They did it. And they, threw it, they picked up the cold, damp nets and threw them on the other side after a night of failed fishing. And, of course, they fill right up to, to, to the point that they can't even get them in the boat. And that's when John says, it's the Lord. Now, what, what tipped John off? I mean, what, what moved him to think that? Was it the authoritative voice? 
Was it the net full of fish? Was it the excess with which God does things, like 12 extra basketfuls of bread? Or was it the command to drop the nets? Remember now, earlier in the ministry of Jesus, there was another miraculous catch of fish. In Luke 5, let me read it for you. He says, And when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and the nets were breaking. Do you see? I think John sees this is Jesus from the miraculous catch earlier in ministry. Now, I want to remind you that, that you, you, you know, miracles in the Bible, whether they're miracles of feeding or miracles of healing, people still get hungry and they still get sick and die. They are to disclose, they are to reveal Jesus, who he is, both his character, his glory, and his mission. And so you see here in this miraculous catch of fish, you see the omniscience of Christ. He knows where they are. You see the power of Christ to send the fish into the net. You see the excessive generosity in 153. You see the glory of Christ that the nets are not torn. They're able to withstand the fish that he sends. I think what he's doing here is he's rescuing their faith. They may be wandering, distracted. They're back at fishing. And he's saying, you will be fishers of men. Because the passage in Luke 5, when he says, lower your nets, he ends that miracle with, I will make you fishers of men. You can't fish for men on your own. You see that? You can't even catch fish. I'll make you fishers of men. I think he's rescuing them. Oh, the mission's going to go on. The mission will be successful. I can drive fish into your nets. I can drive men to the gospel. I can draw them as I'm lifted up. See, I think you see this move of, of his tenderness, even post-resurrection, not chiding them, but rescuing, renewing their faith, even in the midst of their failure. Friends, what do you do when you fail, when you struggle, when you're faltering in faith? Do you chide yourself and criticize yourself? Do you see this as an opportunity for God's glory? Do you see the failures that they had were actually a beautiful environment for God to display his glory. That it's, we kind of see it last week, didn't we? That in our insufficiency, we turn to Jesus and find him sufficient. Do you not think that a caring father who wants to draw you deeper into faith, do you think that he won't even use these difficult events to weaken us so as to strengthen us? Isn't that what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Didn't he say that he prayed for that thorn in the flesh to be removed? And yet in the end, he says, I'll boast in my weaknesses. He'll boast. Who here wants to boast in where you feel insufficient? Most of us shy away from it. We want to stay in those areas that we feel strong and that we feel accomplished and that we feel valued. But Paul says, I'll boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ will rest upon me. It's an inverted way of looking at our weaknesses. Instead of shying away from them, we run to them because they may be that unique occasion where God reveals himself in glory to us that we wouldn't see if we're constantly walking in this sense of comfort over my own sufficiency. So you see, Jesus leads us to points of difficulty and hardship. Friends, the Christian who knows Christ is sovereignly good 
will not shy away from points and struggles and weaknesses because we're going to be looking even more intently. Where is he? He needs to be here. He'll come. He'll be sufficient. And also, notice who he chooses to do this task of evangelization for the world. I mean, when you, it, it always serves me to consider the, these men. Peter jumping right into the sea. You, you just got to love that, don't you? We could use a little more of that enthusiasm. You know, that Jesus Christ would be such a draw. You don't want to wait for the boat to come in there. You just throw yourself in the sea because you love him so much. But, but you see these men, they were broken men. They, they were broken men. They, they didn't, they, there's no strategists here. There's no PhDs here. There's no super, you know, educated, wealthy. They were just fishermen. I mean, think about the early church. I mean, the early church is filled with prostitutes and tax collectors, day laborers. I mean, they were filled with people. This, this is one way of actually encouraging me in the veracity and the power of the gospel. How the gospel has come all the way to us here through these kind of men. It shows you it isn't the bearer of the message. It's the message itself that changes us. It isn't the strength of the messenger. It's the beauty of the message that saves. So, so just remember, we learn a lot here uh, that he wants to renew. You know, Psalm 85, I often pray for us as a church. It, it, the psalmist says, revive our hearts again, O Lord. Revive our hearts. Friends, if you're languishing in faith, ask God to revive your soul. Ask him to reveal to you his son. Ask him, even in points of weaknesses, when you feel your soul needs to be, ask him. He says, you have not because you ask not. Let's burden him with our questions. God, give us your spirit. Reveal to us your son. Strengthen us in our weakness. Show me your glory, like Moses prayed. So, so that's the first thing we see here, that he comes to renew our faith. Uh, but secondly, he comes to serve us, doesn't he? Look with me at 9 to 15, or 9 to 14. He says, when they, got out, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. You can't imagine the amount of hay that is produced on Y-153. Even Augustine gets into this. If you add up 1, 2, 3, all the way to 17, 17 is important because 10 is or 7 is completion and 10 commandments. If you add all this up, it gets to 153, which means all the nations will be saved. It's really crazy. But there's 153. I think it's just the excessive generosity of God. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus did reveal himself more than three times, but in John's gospel, three are recorded. So what's Jesus doing here? Here, Jesus is now raised, right? He has conquered death. And what's he doing? He's serving. He's putting together a charcoal fire. He's preparing food for these tired and hungry men. These tired and hungry men who didn't even recognize him, he had to reveal himself. He is feeding them. He's serving them. He's loving them. 
Hasn't this been his ministry? Hasn't he walked with them? Hasn't he taught them? Hasn't he forgiven them? Hasn't he admonished them? Hasn't he washed their feet? He's a servant. Do you see Jesus here serving them? And do notice that the fish and the bread that were being served were already there. They were already, where did he get them from? Well, we just know he created loaves and fishes. Remember, Jesus Christ has the authority and the power to create something out of nothing. He created the bread. He created the fish. He fed them. It's incredible how he serves. He's fulfilling that promise. You, you know, in Psalm 79, 18, the mockers of God say to the psalmist, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. He does right here. He prepares a table. Psalm 33, even in the presence of my enemies. So you see the service of Jesus here. He's kind in his service. Friends, let me ask you, how often do you stop to enjoy him serving you? How often do you consider his service to you? How often do you meditate and find your heart warmed over his provision, his care, his service to you? See, many of us, I dare say all of us in this room, would deny the principle that God helps those who help themselves. I think all of us would deny that. But how often do we live it? How often do we practice it? I mean, how often are we thinking more about what am I doing for him rather than thinking about what he has done for me? I mean, many of us get caught up in this Martha syndrome. I've got to be busy for the Lord rather than a Mary syndrome that I've got to be devoted and resting and listening and contemplating. How much more is it probably more about us as we consider all that we're doing, and yet we're not really considering what he has done for us? And I, and I wonder, to what degree does this cause our own enjoyment of him to languish? Because we don't think about, what has he done for us? What has he done? I mean, he's taken on flesh and blood. Right? He's not regarded equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's humbled himself. He's come down. A body has been prepared. He's entered our weakness, our shame. He's entered our world. He's come out into the wilderness to meet us. He's come to serve us by teaching us the gospel, by producing the gospel and laying down his life for us, bearing our sin, our shame, our guilt. He continues to serve us as he was raised from the dead, assuring to us that we will be raised, that, that we will be justified. He continues to serve us in heaven by interceding for us. He continues to serve us even now, preparing to again come back and to restore us to himself in all ways. I mean, he serves us. How about the breath? When Carol and I pray every Saturday for the church, we pray that you will be alive on Sunday morning. It's not guaranteed. James says, don't say you're going to go to this city and you're going to do business. He says, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Friends, I'm telling you, phone call away. We pray that you would, when you wake up, you would recognize God has given me this day. That's what we pray for. And that Sunday morning would be a great time of rejoicing for you. Do you realize that when he comes back, he's going to serve you? 
So Jesus teaches this parable in Luke chapter 12. He's teaching his disciples about being prepared for when he comes. And he says this in Luke 12. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service. He will have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. What would you do when this day comes and he has you? Are you going to get up? No, 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 you shouldn't be doing this. No, no, I'm going to serve you. No, it's in the character of Christ to serve. He serves us. Friends, it's something to just let your mind be just incredibly encouraged by and your soul warmed. He, he has served us. He's serving us right now as he gives his spirit, which I'm trusting, to bring these words to bring you to a greater depth of love for him and his service for you. Can we just thank him? I mean, instead of, well, I got to do something for you, Jesus. No, can we just thank him? Can we just be grateful? Can we be like that one leper that came back and just said, thank you, thank you. You've been so kind to me that maybe even, maybe even this week, if I could just press on your souls, could you just make it the point to tell someone else what you are thankful to him for, how he has served you. Just even around the table at the picnic today, I'm just thankful he's given me life. I'm thankful he's given me and my family. I'm thankful he's made my, made my heart aware of the nature of sin and my need for the gospel. That we would be a people just marked by our gratitude to Christ. And then, of course, gratitude, gratitude to each other. So he comes to serve. You see that in this banquet. But last, he comes to restore. Jesus restores the fallen. This is really a beautiful passage of Scripture. He says, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. You know, we're kind of drawn into a very personal moment here. So if you've read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, you know that at one point uh, Aslan takes Edmund. Edmund had acted in a treacherous way against I know most of you are waiting for me to buffalo this little moment here because I always get confused with Lord of the Rings. I won't do it today by God's grace. But, uh, but he takes him to the side and he speaks to him. And you kind of see the intimacy here that he just speaks to Peter. Because the church, remember now, when this gospel is written, Peter would have been dead for years. He would have been dead. It, it, it's... John wrote the text for us. For us to see, he restores the fallen. Uh, Peter had already been reconciled and in heaven with God. He's writing it for us. He really does restore the... If you're wondering about Peter, don't worry about it. He's restored. So he takes him to the side and he asks him the same question three times. Why three times? Well, of course, I'm sure many of you know and can kind of put pieces together that Peter denied him three times. This was a path of restoration. This wasn't a chiding. And, and let, me, let, me, let me let you know what you need to hear. 
No, this was him drawing Peter to himself to restore him. That's the way Jesus does it. So many times I think we want our pound of flesh in an event where someone has acted in a treacherous way towards us. Not so Jesus. He asked him three times. And the, the reason I'm really solidly certain it's a path of restoration reminding him of the three denials was because of this. There's a charcoal fire. There's only two charcoal fires in the New Testament. One is the night of denial and one is the morning of restoration. Now, John wants us to know, you know Jesus is taking Peter back and he's asking him three times. He's saying, do you love me more than these? More than what? Well, more than the other disciples. Do you remember Peter himself said in Mark 14, he says, hey, listen, if all these other disciples desert you, I won't. So, so he's doing this comparative analysis where he, he's better than all the rest of them. And, I, and Jesus is taking him back. And he's saying, do you love me? And he asks him three times. It's like the blow of a hammer on a rock. Do you? And what he's doing is he's trying to awaken Peter to see his own self-confidence, his self-assertiveness, his comparison with others. He's trying to bring him to a place of humility and restoration. Humility, uh, humility must come before reconciliation comes. That's why blessed are those who mourn. They shall inherit the kingdom of God. Humility must come to us. You cannot go to Jesus proud. You have to go humble. That's why he says the kingdom belongs to these children. They're humble. They're not proud and arrogant and self-advancing. And you see that here. And you see it in Peter's response. Because he doesn't speak boldly about himself. He says, Lord, you know. He defers to the Lord. You know. I love you. And then that third time, Lord, you know everything. I, I can't tell you anything. You know my heart. I don't think that was a proclamation of pure, undiluted love. He says, Lord, you know. I, I'm submitting to you. And it's then that Jesus recommissions him. Then feed my lambs, then tend my sheep, then feed my sheep. So, so Peter comes repentant. Jesus forgives and moves back into a place of service. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would, would often view this text and say, this is the text for the establishment of Peter as the first, the, the vicar of the church, the one church. And he's the, the, it's the establishment of the papacy. Peter didn't see it that way, I don't think. He is told to tend and to feed the work of a shepherd, right? Sheep. Now, there are differences, stylistic differences. He says feed the lambs and feed the sheep and tend. And, and those are more stylistic differences. John uses different words interchangeably in his gospel often. Same thing with love. He uses two different words for love in this passage. I don't think there's hidden meaning that we're supposed to draw out there. Uh, but, but Peter understood it to be do the work of the shepherd. In fact, he would write to the churches in Asia Minor later, uh, later in his first letter. He'd say to the elders, he says, shepherd the flock of God that's under your care. Uh, not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for sordid gain, uh, but by being examples. So Peter sees himself and his role as shepherd of feeding. But notice that it says, my sheep. Jesus says, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. Uh, do you, that's an identity for you. 
you are his sheep. You're not, you're not the sheep of the pastors and elders of this church. You're his sheep. We're temporal stewards. I had a mentor. Some of you who have been here a long time know this. I had a mentor when I was back in seminary um, who would say, don't ever call the church that you pastor my church. You, know, that's, you hear that in pastoral conferences all the time. My church is this and my church is that. He said, don't ever do that. He said, you didn't come to establish it. You didn't climb on a cross to save it. You're not coming back in glory for it. You're a temporal steward over a people that have been given to you to feed and to care. It's been hugely instructive for me, letting things go. And just, God, these are your people. But you're his people. I mean, you're his sheep. You're the ones that we're to care for. You, he owns you. You're part of his pasture. Friends, let that build an identity rather than what you've accomplished or who you think you want to be. You're his sheep. Those of you who have heard his voice and follow. Friends, when you look at this, he restores the fallen. Um, consider with me for a minute, Peter. Uh, consider the regret that he had. He was told to stay awake in the garden. He fell asleep. He was warned that he would deny, but he denied that he would deny, but he still denied. Can you imagine the regret that he had? Uh, can you imagine the, the shame and the guilt of seeing him again? I mean, just the shame of it. And, and yet he's forgiven. What regrets do you have in your life right now that keep you from just jumping into the sea and pursuing them? I mean, too many over the course of ministry have told me, you don't know what I've done. He could never forgive me. Friends, you have the text here in front of you. All can be forgiven by the one who has earned the forgiveness. Jesus can say, you are forgiven because he's earned it. Friends, please don't neglect the mercy of God. Don't set your sin up as somehow more sovereign than the one who's hung on a tree for us. Don't, don't neglect his mercy to us. I pray that if you are here and you're not, you're still entrenched in this idea of, I can't be forgiven. Please, you see a Savior who comes and he renews. He comes and he serves. He comes and he, he forgives and restores. Please, come to him by faith. Ask for forgiveness. Ask to be restored and reconciled. That's how we become Christians. It's at the point of seeing our sin that we see the Savior and then we jump into the sea and we go right to him. Uh, but, but, but notice that it's, that it's, do you love me? He asks, do you love me? That's an interesting question. He doesn't say, do you have faith? He doesn't say, how orthodox is your theology? He, he says, do you love me? This is the mark of the one that comes to Christ. Do you love me? Friends, I can't, that's why I ask you at the end of every year, do you love me? Do you love him more? This is the litmus test for faith. I don't want to deny the value of strong doctrine. But love has to be part of it. J.C. Rowell writes this about 
those who struggle in faith. He says, a true servant of Christ may be weak and fearful and ignorant and falling in many things. And, and yet it, he may be real and sincere. He says, ask him whether he's converted or whether he's a believer. Ask him whether he has grace or whether he's justified, whether he's sanctified, whether he's elect or whether he's a child of God. Ask him any of those questions and he may perhaps reply that he doesn't really know. But ask him whether he loves Christ. And he'll reply, I do. He may add that he doesn't love him as much as he ought to. But he will not say that he doesn't love him at all. The rule will be found true with very few exceptions. Wherever there is true grace, there will be a consciousness of love towards Christ. Do you have a love? To, do you love him? I mean, do you love him? Do, when you think about his work and his life, and his, do you love him? Even a little bit? Because if you love him, then you're going you're gonna to serve. You're going to serve him. Notice how he relates, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Uh, do you love me? Then tend my lambs. Do you love me? Then, then feed my lambs. Do you see how love is the fuel of service? And, and this is why we're so foolish to separate doctrine from service. Good doctrine on the atonement and the work of Christ will always naturally fuel a service to people. That, that we shouldn't have to cajole people into serving. Do you love me? But see, it's hard to love people, isn't it? And it's hard to, I should say, it's hard to serve people because we're an odd group of people. Listen, our church has a, a wide demographic. Uh, we aren't all 20-something or 60-something. We're a wide group of people from, a, from a, a lot of different regions, educational and cultural backgrounds. And it's hard to serve one another. And many of us are a little bit prickly and we don't give the, the attaboys that we ought to or we maybe complain more than others. And it's hard to move towards one another with service. It is. Many of times in the church, these wouldn't be the people that we choose to be our friends. And yet here, there are brothers and sisters. But I want you to see that Peter is giving us wisdom. Do you love me? If we love Christ, we're going to serve one another. The fuel for service, even in difficult services, is his love. Do you love him? I ask myself that. Do I love him when I'm about to do something difficult or I don't want to do or my obedience isn't joy-filled immediately? But do I love him? This is Soren Kierkegaard, a book about purity, wrote The Audience of One. That was the expression he used. And um, the audience of one has been taken from him and extrapolated to kind of People have a lot of, given a lot of words to it about it. we live for him. We, we live and move our, have, have our being in him. And so, and so we are seeking to please him. And this is what fuels service. And you see it fueled Peter. Because notice what he says at the end. He says, Peter, you're going to go where you don't want to go. And they're going to stretch your arms out. You're going to die in serving me. That, that's not given to all. John did not hear the same word. But Peter did. And he was faithful. Church tradition has it that he was crucified. Upside down. On a road out of Rome. With his wife. 
this bold, brash Peter loved him so much that he served him and died for him. He's a hero. Brash and bold, no doubt, but he's a hero. He was restored, and he lived it out. Remember, one author said, some of the greatest sinners will make the greatest saints, and he did. So for us who struggle with sin, as we consider how he has served us, let it create in you a love for him, and let that love for him move in service to him by serving others. And may we as a church be found faithful to the very end. Let's take a moment and just ask God for grace to help us understand the glory of his service that we might love well. For he who has been forgiven much will love much.